the last few weeks, we've had conversations that have had common thread through them. Uh, Some of them were stirred out of the story of King Asa, some of them not so much, but all of them spoke to God and his character, how he's an unchanging God, he's the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he's the same tomorrow, how our culture evolves up and down. And, and you know, it's funny, I feel like our culture is continually evolving into darkness. And, and from the outside looking in or from the inside looking in, you, you would be hard-pressed to argue that. But God can bring revival to a people anytime he decides to bring revival to a people. This nation could turn on a dime if God chose for it to turn on a dime. So I'm stopping to be discouraged and, and, and whatever about... All these things, uh, the focus isn't on the things, the focus is on Jesus. The focus is to pray and intercede and, and to believe. Because he turned Israel upside down how many times, right? He can turn USA, this whole world upside down. I just pray that his name be hallowed in all the earth, that his kingdom come and his will be done on this earth, in this country, in this state, in this county, in each and every one of our homes as it is in heaven, in our hearts as it is in heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father God. And and I praise God that he is unchanging. It would be very difficult, right? If you're a person in culture today, we struggle probably with trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, this was right 20 years ago, but now it's wrong. And and this was wrong 20 years ago, but now it's right. But God, he doesn't just change with winds of doctrine. He is who he is, who he is. He doesn't change. He remains solid. He's the rock. He's our foundation. We can look to him and we can know, right? Yeah. Amen. We talked about his expectations of his people from a whole bunch of different perspectives. We talked about covenant a little bit last week. I think sometime in the near future we're going to talk about covenant some more. But the context of covenant is that it's not something that we negotiate. It's not like man and God come to the table the union and the company, and we negotiate what covenant is going to look like. God presents covenant. God presents the terms of covenant. We choose whether we're going to agree to those terms or not. We don't negotiate with God. Covenant is his offering. It's his gift to us, but as a, it's, a, it's a conditional gift. And we talked a little bit about actually judging God. Remember I told you the story last week about the lady who's uh, in agreement with the Lord, Christian lady, about most everything, but in these couple of areas, she thinks God's wrong and, and questions God, and that's literally judging him, that we don't judge God. And I had Sunday, all the rest of Sunday after church, and Monday, I had what um, pastors call preacher's hangover. I used to get it all the time when the devil would get in my head early on in church on the street, questioning myself, questioning myself, questioning myself. I haven't really struggled with it at all for years, really. I had it after last Sunday. And I think it boiled down to this. I I spoke in very strong terms about the church or man judging God in disagreement with him. But I think what I should have said, I think all that was true, but what what I should have said was that I think God understands that we don't understand. He tells us, I think it's in Isaiah, two different places. He says that, that his thoughts are greater than our thoughts. Right? He's the creator. We're the creature. He hasn't given us to have the fullness of his thoughts. And he said that his ways are higher than our ways. 
because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, we're not always able to comprehend his ways being higher than the best we could rationalize. I think it's okay for us to go to God in humility and say, God, I don't understand how this... Pardon me. (laughs) Stand back a little bit. I don't understand how this can be. How could this not be love? How could you not ordain this? I think there's grace in humbly asking. I don't think there's grace in declaring to God that he's wrong. So... I wanted to just soften that one a little bit. So the character of God, that God doesn't change, what are his expectations of people that would come into covenant with him, that that we wouldn't be judging God, all this to what end? That we won't be deceived. That we would walk in truth, not in deception. That's why when when Pick said to me uh, about deception and don't be deceived, I was like, wow, Lord, you're telling me, you're, you're encouraging me that it wasn't a miss on my part, that this is the word that you have for us today. We have our Bible study um, one morning a week, a few of us men, and um, we've been reading 1 Corinthians. And in reading 1 Corinthians for the Bible study, I opened up one of my commentaries on a particular course of Scripture, and the commentator used a word I'd never heard before. The word was antinomianism. I know, it's a big word, and, and honestly, I care less if you remember it or not. But it's an, interesting, it's an interesting word, and it's an interesting deception. Antinomianism is anti, anti is against, and nomos is law. So if you have an, I don't even know what the, the different variations of this word actually are, but if you have an antinomian perspective, it would, it would essentially mean against the law. And what it does is it takes biblical truth, And it extends it beyond the truth of the Bible. So, for example, um, you can't be saved by keeping the law, right? It would be good. You're anti-law. I'm not going to try to find my salvation in the keeping of the law. But then if you extend that to a place that God doesn't offer that's not still truth, it becomes antinomianism. And, And basically, antinomianism in this context is what it's saying is that we would extend God's grace into places where he doesn't offer his grace. So um, I cannot be saved by keeping of the law. That's absolutely the truth. Therefore, God doesn't care whether I try to keep any of the law. That would be antinomianism. Because God certainly has an expectation of his people that they would walk according to his ways. Correct? Right? Paul said... I didn't study this particular, it just comes to my mind, but Paul said the law is holy and righteous and good. The law is moral. The the law is a representation of God's character. So antinomianism basically would be where we would extend the truth into places where it's not true anymore. And and in in, in one context where we would extend grace where God doesn't offer it. Good? Okay. The scripture that we were reading when I had this thought that led me to this commentary that led me to this word that I then went to my friend Google to try to understand, was 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
In Ephesians 5, you see the same theme, verses 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then finally, a third place, Galatians five nineteen through 21 Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, (sighs) drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, three letters that Paul writes, not three times to the same church, although in one of the churches he said, I forewarn you, I'm warning you now, look into the future as you move forward, as I forewarned you before, as I told you before, don't be deceived. Three letters to three different churches with the same message in the letters. That people who practice things like idolatry and and enmities towards God and outbursts of anger and all these other things will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. They're incongruous with each other. They don't equal. They're not equal. If, if these things are part of a person's life, that thing will not be a part of their eternity. That's the message that he's trying to say. And he says, don't be deceived. And there's, there's, a, there's a spirit. It's not a big S spirit. It's a little S spirit that's kind of been blowing through the church for a long time. And it's influenced us. And it's influenced me. And it's a spirit that says there's grace where God doesn't give grace. That because you're saved, none of this stuff matters. This inherit the kingdom of God, that this one won't and that one won't, and the one who practices this will not. That spirit is a lying spirit and it's a deceiving spirit. And Paul is telling the churches, don't be deceived. People who practice these things shall not spend eternity with God. How will you respond? Amen. There's a key word, though, and I mentioned it a couple times in here, that, that you, as you hear the rest of today's message, you, you want to be sure to discern, discern the word practice. He said, those who practice such things. And I'm going to read to you from 1 John, and the word practice is very important when you interpret the scriptures in 1 John as to the the concerns that you would have if you were a practicer of these kind of things. So just pay attention for that word. Look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. These are the Lord, Lord guys. This is one of the most impactful scriptures in the New Testament to me personally. I don't know about you, but to me it's very, very impactful to hear about these people that are doing miracles in the name of Jesus, that are prophesying in the name of Jesus, that are literally casting out devils in the name of Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says, I mean, this is judgment day. They're standing there, right? They're wondering, you know, how much reward am I? What's my treasure pile in heaven going to look like? And Jesus says to them, your name again. I'm sorry I don't know you. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are church people. I don't know a single person. I was saved for or unsaved for all, over 40 years of my life. I did never, ever, ever in my life run into somebody who did a miracle in the name of Jesus Christ. I never ran into somebody who cast out a devil. I never ran into somebody who prophesied until I came into the church. These aren't casual church people. These are, I almost said a bad slang word. These are people who think they're in love with Jesus. And they're doing stuff. They pr- Another one almost. They probably served in children's church too. Sorry. They're church people. What was their issue? Why didn't they get to stay with Jesus? Because he didn't know him. Why didn't he know him? Because they practiced lawlessness. Remember the video? Maybe the video did work good for the sermon. Right? All these guys present their case. Whoo, I know there's some bad stuff in there, but I think the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. I'm so happy. I had lived my whole life. I ran an orphanage in India. Blah, 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 blah. I didn't know you. I didn't know you. I didn't know you. They did lawlessness. You'll see later that the doers of lawlessness do not know Jesus. Go to 1 John now. And, and if, if I, you probably sometimes wish I would. I, I feel like I have to, I have to overprove every point in Scripture, but it, but it puts out lots of Scripture. I could preach from this course of Scripture, this entire message. It's all in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Remember, away from me, you doers of lawlessness. These guys that Jesus said, the Lord, Lord guys. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So, without regard to all this, if we're in him, there is no sin, right? That guy handed his folder, Jesus handed the guy a different folder, one piece of paper in the other folder, the piece of paper said, Son of God. The man got on the scale, he said, Get off the scale. It doesn't matter what you weigh or measure, it matters what he weighs or measures. Jesus, you get on the scale, you are perfect and righteous, you, because you have the letter that says, Son of God, you go over here, not over there. There is no sin in Christ Jesus. No one who abides, that's a big word too, important word. No one who abides in him, in Jesus, sins. No one who abides in him, sins. No one who sins, has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed, his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For all of the new, the 
all of, I want to say New Testament times, I want to say all of since zero, zero, all of since Jesus, people have debated how can this be true. It must mean something other than what it says. Guess what? It means what it says. The best way to interpret scripture is to first just read what it says and interpret it for what it says. It means what it says. It's interesting. This is the Apostle John. This is the Apostle who described himself as the one that Jesus loved. Like, are these other guys? I don't know, but me, he loved. This is the one who put his head on Jesus' chest. This is the one, if you want to see this kind of stuff, abiding and, and obeying and all that kind of stuff, read John. Read the Gospel of John. Read John's epistle letters. John had a relationship with Jesus. If you read the beginning of 1 John, it's awesome. It's like, hey, we were with him. We heard him. We touched him. We were with him while he walked here. We're telling you these things so that you can know. He addresses these people like a father would his children, little children, sons and daughters. Hear what I'm saying. Don't be deceived. The one who practices sin is of the devil. The one is a person. And it's important that, like, if, if my kids misbehave and, and you correct them, right? And then, the, then the, the, the devil, the bad spirit gets on him and says, you know what, I'm, I'm just a bad person, I did bad. I, it's like, no, 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 no. You're not a bad person, you did a bad thing. Right? If you practice sin, you're a bad person in the context of are you saved or aren't you saved. If you're allowing a, a, a full-on lifestyle that practices sin, it's speaking to your person. If you're a person who stumbles... And, and, and confesses and repents, it's not speaking to who you are, it's speaking to what you did. In the context of practicing sin, it speaks to who you are in regard to your relationship with God. No one who is born of God practices sin. I think, who is it, the Nicodemus that Jesus said, unless a person be born again, he can't see the kingdom of heaven, right? To Nicodemus, this this Sanhedrin Pharisee guy. And, and, and John says here, no one who is born of God practices sin. You might sin. It doesn't mean you're not born again. It doesn't mean you're not born of God. It doesn't mean you're not saved. But if you're practicing sin, then that's a big, huge red flag that you need to address. It's not here in my notes, but, but I'll say it here. Maybe I'll say it again. A couple of things that you might consider. The first is that you're not saved. If you read First John and just take it at face value and you're a person practicing sin, it might indicate to you that you never actually got saved. Praise God that he put it in his word so you could see it. You could repent sincerely. You could ask Jesus for forgiveness. You could confess him as your Savior. You could confess him as your Lord. Problem solved. No shame in that. Thank God for his word. The other thing's a little more insidious, though. It could be the indication of a hardened heart. Sometimes we'll have issues in life that bring us to a place of bitterness and judgment and unforgiveness or who knows what. And if we harbor those things, we harbor those things, we harbor those things, we get calloused in our hearts. And as read first, uh, not first, uh, it's chapter 1, uh, Romans chapter 1 into chapter 2. Paul speaks directly to the hardened heart. You may have a hardened heart. Maybe you are saved. Now, you know, you, the, the other guy who would hear this on the internet, the guy in Montana. Somebody from Montana actually sent me an email. 
saying how wonderful my sermons are. I'm like, wow. <laughs> what a tangent, huh? Anyway, praise God. Um, you may have, because of bitterness, because of who knows what, you may have closed your heart in a certain area that's opened yourself to the influence of the enemy that leads you unto practicing sin. That's where sozo, that's where this class that Anna's teaching about atmospheres, what am I thinking, what's the influence, what's the right question, all these things, brothers and sisters that should have the courage and love to confront these things in our lives, we can say, oh my gosh, Lord, I, I feel as though maybe my heart has gotten hardened. Please forgive me and, and give me that fleshy heart for this heart of stone. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 the poster child for antinomianism, and no one would claim to be antinomianist or whatever the word is, is, is the greasy grace or the hyper grace movement, as it's called, that says, no, 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 you're saved. All your bad stuff is gone. No more new bad stuff. You, you, you know, live how you want, blah, blah, blah. There's no consequence. There's no issue. John, who lived with Jesus for his ministry, who was taught by him, who was one of the three closest ones to him, says, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So it's not just, remember the conversation about holiness and righteousness? This is just according to Pat. I'm not sure that this is perfect definition, but the way I look at holiness is, is set apart from, it's out of. So if I had some kind of bad activities in my life that were displeasing to God, holiness says, I'm not in that place anymore. I, I do not participate in those things anymore. But then God says, if you have the means, through, through his word, if you have the means to meet a brother's physical need, and you don't meet it, how can the love of God be in your heart? So I come down the street, and, and I see a person who's looking like they're starving. Excuse me, are you starving? I am starving. Oh, brother, well, you know, be well fed in the Lord. I'm going to just take my sandwich and eat it over here now. Even though I know I got a big dinner coming, and I had a big breakfast Righteousness is, hey, you should have my sandwich, and if I can help you in any other way. So holiness is, is away from things that God hates, and righteousness is, is full on into those things that he wants. The alien, the widow, the orphan, considering others more highly than we consider ourselves. If we don't practice righteousness, if we're callous towards the needs of our brothers and sisters and of the world, John says, you're not born of God. But then in, in John chapter 1, this is where practice versus sin, the practice of versus I did a sin, can be differentiated. 1 John 1, 9, here is grace from God. No grace to, for a license to sin, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to, excuse me, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Practice of sin? Not saved. What do you need? Get saved. That's how you get cleansed from unrighteousness. Born again? Stumble? Confess your sin to God. Humble yourself before God. And he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. And the blood of his son Jesus will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. It's a mindset. I don't think I put it in here, but it's in Galatians. It says, God will not be mocked. From that which a man sows, he will reap. If we think that we can live a licentious sinful lifestyle and grace will just take care of it it's mocking god it's making fun of god it's applying his grace where he hasn't offered it
Listen to this one. Do not be deceived. This is James 4.4. 4. It's a strong word. James is a strong word kind of book. If you ever feel like you need God to smack you with a two-by-four, read James. You adulteresses, like you cheaters, you've attached yourself to God, to Jesus, as his betrothed to be full-on bride. You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I think he's speaking to a saved person in that context because you wouldn't be an adulteress. You'd be a fornicator maybe, but you wouldn't be an adulteress if you weren't already connected to, connected to God. But if we think that because of grace, God just looks the other way and, and he's okay with this sinful lifestyle, this, oh, this is what the world does, and it's fun because sin is tasty. I wish it wasn't. I wish it had a terrible taste, but it doesn't. It has an attractive taste to the flesh. If we want to live our life in the ways that the world lives our lives, we are literally enemies of God. We have to come out of those places unto holiness and into those places, maybe right back into those places with a different perspective, sharing the gospel with people so that they can come out of the darkness and into the light. But we can't go into the darkness as darkness. One foot in, kingdom, and one foot out, world, equals two feet out. Now, you, you can have two feet in the kingdom and sidestep and stumble one foot in. Not a problem. But, but if you think there's a life with God that looks like Sunday mornings I go to church, you know, whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones, whatever, and the rest of the time I live over here in the world, you actually live over here in the world. This isn't your pretend this is your pretend. This is your real. This is your false. This one, got to come over here and live here. Otherwise, they're both living here. Okay? All right. Don't be deceived. Oh, here's where I had the note about God is graceful. He is wonderful and graceful. His love is absolute and it's perfect. But a practice, practice of sin without strong conviction might be either. I'm practicing sin, it doesn't feel bad. I'm, I'm probably not saved or I've got a hard heart. That, that's the place where that was in there. I had a guy tell me one time, and I've had a couple other instances of this, but a guy who was an absolute blessing from heaven for me and Therese as we were coming to know Jesus, right? Saved, baby, 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 babies discipled us, taught us, all kind of stuff. Really great. Hugely influential in our walk with the Lord in a good way. I had to confront him about sin really three times. And, and the first time was about stealing. Oh, I'm not stealing. Yes, you are stealing. No, I'm not stealing. Let me explain to you how I know you're stealing. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, I am stealing. Are you going to stop? No, I'm not. Why are you not going to stop? Because God hasn't convicted me of it. Okay. <laughs> Let's take one more step over here. Let's talk again. Are you stealing? Yes. Does God condone stealing? No. Are you going to stop? I'm not going to stop. Why are you not going to stop? Because God needs to convict me of it. He doesn't need to convict you of it. I said, you don't need to be convicted. You are convicted. You understand that it's stealing. You understand it's contrary to the truth. Yet you're going to do it anyway because you're waiting for... (laughs) I'll tell you the story in a second. You're waiting for God to convict you. He is convicting you. That's why I'm here. 
Now, I praise God for this guy because three times, and, and, and he sees himself, you know, as, as an elder to me in the church, and he really is. I mean, he was a discipler of me. The student's not greater than a teacher. That's probably not a good application of that scripture. Three times I corrected him. Three times he got mad at me. Three times he walked away mad at me. Three times he called me up. Three times he came back. Three times he said, you were right. I was wrong. Pray with me that I'll repent. See, that's a guy who's sinning. And in that regard, he was actually practicing sin. And God in his grace made him aware of it. And then... He came under the grace of God in his humility because he must have gone and asked the Lord, okay, I don't want this guy to know that I might be wrong, but am I wrong? And the Lord said, yes. And not only did he confess it to the Lord, not only did he repent before the Lord, he was man enough to come back and apologize to me. See, that's a guy who could sin and be okay, right? So he used me, right? Here's another way God uses it. I, I told the story this morning. It just popped into my head. Very funny. It'll be worth the extra two minutes you're here. I saw a video. You probably saw this video, some of you. Somebody posted it on Facebook. I saw it twice. The second time I saw it, I, didn't, I saw the actual explanation. So it's, a, it's like a park or something with this wide paved you know, walkway. And you see people. It's like a security camera from back here. You see people walking, you know, like this couple walking through the park. And they make a turn on the thing and you don't see them anymore. And it's, it's blank for a couple minutes and, um, you know, 30 seconds maybe. And then you see this guy, and here's this guy, he's walking, he's walking. From the sky, bam, a bolt of lightning hits the guy, pow, he drops to the ground, he looks like he's dead. You're like, for like 30 seconds, he just lays there. And the guy's like, (laughs) starts to shake himself, he pushes up onto his knees, he's like, oh. Gets up, he's like, wow, the guy survived the lightning, he takes five more steps, pow, he gets hit again, twice. (laughs) By lightning. He survived that one too. I know he survived it because when they took him to the hospital, they were like, what were you doing? He said, there was this couple that was walking in front of me. I was on my way. I was going to rob them. God's good. He saved the guy from sinning. It was a shocking way to do it, but he saved the guy from sinning. Okay, back to the stories here. God's word will convict us of our sin. If we deny it in God's word, he will likely send a brother. If you don't listen to the brother, he might send the police. Who knows how God, because he loves you, will get you to this place of walking in holiness because you've said that your life belongs to him. Jesus, now this is in the, in the context of money, but Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You just won't. His application was wealth or God. But the same is true. You can't serve flesh and God. You can't serve selfishness and God. You can only serve one master. We've chosen to serve Jesus as master. We have to constantly press in to serving Jesus as master so that we don't wander away. Heaven forbid, think about robbing a couple in the park. I'll probably get here again. Three more scriptures. <laughs> and that would be a miracle. It's actually one I wouldn't ask for. Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. What do we do? We lay aside and we put on. 
we lay aside, and we put on. We are constantly in this process of being sanctified. And as we become aware, we put aside the flesh, we put on the Lord Jesus. Make no provision for the flesh and its lusts. You provide it nothing. It comes up in your mind, you cast it down. You see something with your eyes, you cast it down. Because the minute we start to make a provision for it, it starts to make a place in us. And the more that we allow it to make a place in us, the harder it is for us to recognize that it doesn't belong in us. And the more that it makes a place in us, this is what a, f- a fortress or a stronghold is, right? In, in uh, 2 Corinthians t- chapter 10, the, the weapons are, of our warfare are divinely powerful for the tearing down of fortresses. I'm going to get this wrong, but taking captive every speculation, every lofty thing that would raise itself up against the knowledge of God, taking captive every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. See, our weapon of our warfare is truth. That's it. Take them all. They boil down to one thing, truth. As soon as we start to embrace in speculation, we allow things into our mind that don't stand obedient to the truth, Fortresses start to get established. And then the problem and the power of the fortress is it becomes how we see truth. That's why you can make no provision for the flesh, no provision for its lusts, because the minute you start to give it a place, it's going to take a place. And the minute it gets a little, it's going to want more. And then you start to get to this place of this hardened heart. And you start to see truth, see what's not true as true. And honestly, that's where our country is getting to, right? We call things that are evil good and things that are good evil. And all of a sudden, the Christian's the bad guy and, and the, the sinning behavior's the good guy. And nobody can discern anything because as a nation, to a large extent, we've become hard in our hearts. We don't acknowledge God anymore. Ephesians four seventeen through 24. Similar theme. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The world is walking in futility. Paul is saying to the church, God, through the Apostle Paul, through his word, don't walk in futility. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's a really powerful scripture for you to contemplate, for all of us to contemplate, because there's a spirit that God has given access, or spirits that God has given access to our minds that is not the big S spirit. These people that he's talking about, don't be like them. Don't be futile in in your way of thinking as they're futile in their way of thinking. The spirit of their mind is not the Holy Spirit. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Which spirit will we listen to? Because there's a spirit that masquerades as an angel of light 
whose deception is excellent, but not excellent compared to the Holy Spirit. So if we are renewed in the spirit of our mind and we are intimate with God's word and intimate with his spirit, when that sneaky devil who comes as an angel of light tries to be the spirit of our minds, what do we do? We cast down every speculation. We cast down every imagination that won't stand to a true knowledge of God or will not stand obedient to Christ. And we will be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove the will of God. We will be excellent in our minds because the spirit of our mind is the spirit of God, not the spirit of this world. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Again, in that same theme. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, now, here's some math that you probably already knew. Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is the chapter of faith. It talks about Abraham and Rahab and all these different great people of faith. And, and that's the cloud of witnesses. All these folks that didn't get to see the fulfillment that they dreamed of. We get to see it. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Sin is an encumbrance. It's a boat anchor. It's a snare. It doesn't have any good fruit to it. It has only death associated with it. We have to run the race with endurance. Oh my gosh, I have these temptations. I keep having these temptations. I keep having these temptations. I just, I'm giving in just one time. Don't give in. Run the race with endurance. The sin is trying to get you. It's almost like a thing. It's like a thing that wants to, it wants to boat anchor you down with regard to the Lord. I, I want to, I want to, I want to, but I can't. Lord, where are you, God? It's because he doesn't, he doesn't live in your sin. He doesn't live in my sin. You have to absolutely choose. We have to, have, I feel like I need to say we and not you. Believe me, I am preaching to myself. We have to have such a foul taste in our mouth for sin. We have to decide to have a foul taste in our mouth for sin that we will not even allow it place in our minds. As it wants to manifest, we say no because it's an encumbrance. It will bind us up. It will slow us down. And if we allow it enough rope, it will hang us. Hmm. Sin is not victimless. Right? Uh, yeah, I'm just going to, everybody's asleep. I'm just going to turn on the computer and look at this stuff. It's not victimless. The minute you turn on the computer and look at that stuff, you're the first victim. Maybe you're the second victim. Because somebody knows you might, some other person is a victim. Because it's like drugs. Let's go after, or, or prostitution. Oh, these prostitutes are so bad. They're so horrible. And like, you know what? The girl or man, the prostitute should be like so far down the list of who we're chasing after. The John is the guy we ought to be chasing after. Because if there's no market for that particular thing, it goes away. It exists because somebody can find a way to make money doing it. And sadly, the one who makes the real money isn't even the poor one that's being abused in the process. It's the you-know-who. 
the point is, there is never a victimless sin. And, and I would be hard-pressed to find a sin where the sinner is the only victim. Sin kills all over the place. When, when we turn on the computer in the middle of the night, let's just say in the, in the case of a man, there are women that are being abused. I don't think there's a single person that participates in that particular industry of, of satisfying that particular bad desire that isn't a victim. And I don't care if they make a million dollars doing it. They're a victim. And the person that turns it on in the middle of the night when nobody's looking is the reason why they can be a victim. And, and there can't be any million dollars if, there, if nobody ever looks at it. And then that stumbling block of a million dollars isn't the stumbling block that leads a person's life into disaster. And heaven for... Well, that's too much on that. Sin is not victimless. Sin separates us from God. Sin denies us his blessing. Sin destroys relationships. It's hard to be in relationship with somebody who's disobedient to God. Because there's no goodness that comes from it. There's no excellent fruit that comes from disobedience to God. Someone who is absolutely obedient to God can have excellent relationship. Because they're easy to have relationship with. Because they're in relationship with him. But a person who lives in sin is a hard person. And if I'm married to that person or that person's married to me, only by the grace of God can relationship happen. It wrecks relationships and it brings death. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is, this is the Apostle John. Now, that thing I referred to earlier. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all, all sin. The, the, the one another is not me and you walking in the light. It's me and God. It's you and God. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we walk in the darkness and think that we're walking with God, we deceive ourselves. Don't be deceived. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. If we think that we're walking with God and we're walking in darkness, we are deceived. We have to walk in the light. And when we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we're having fellowship with him. See, he's not offering us an impossible thing. He's offering us the opportunity to have fellowship with him. He's not talking about heaven here. He's talking about now. We can have fellowship with the God of the universe right now. He hangs out in the light. Just some quick conclusions. There is grace for sin, but not for a lifestyle of sin. If we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive. Don't be deceived. A sinful life will not end in heaven. There is no fellowship with God in darkness. We need to choose Holy Spirit to be the spirit of our mind. And that's a constant choosing. It's an every day, every minute choosing. We need to abide in Jesus and abide in his word. Listen to John 15 verses 4 through 7. This is Jesus speaking. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, 
Jesus. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. What's the secret of walking in the light? It's abiding in Jesus. I know I'm a broken record, but I know this is absolute truth. If you don't read the Bible, read the Bible. If you read it a little, read it more. If you can't read it because you're interested in a TV show, repent. Seriously. You call him Lord and you have no idea. You, not you, but somebody you. Call him Lord, but have no interest in what it is that his lordship looks like. If you are constantly abiding in his word, it is impossible for you to have a lifestyle of sin. It's impossible. If you abide in him and you abide in his word, you will not have a lifestyle of sin. I promise you. I promise you. It's it's just not possible. They don't mix. They're oil and water. You might, not have the, you might have the propensity to sin. You might have your flesh rise up and you want to sin, but you will not have a lifestyle of sin. I know it. I could testify to it because I know it. Because I used to not be that guy, and now I am that guy. I'm the guy that reads his Bible every day. I'm the guy that prays pretty much every single day. And I am telling you, I am tempted but I very seldomly stumble. And you can call me arrogant or you can call me whatever you want, but I'm telling you the truth as I know it. The stuff that, that the Lord shows me is stuff that is subtle. Now, sometimes my flesh rises up and I do something stupid. It's usually in the car, it seems like. <laughs> but it takes one half of one second for the conviction to come. Why? Because I'm abiding in Jesus and Him in me. And I've sown into His Word and it's so awesome before the youth come back, now you guys got to be quiet. We had a thing last night. It was awesome. And I would tell you about it, but I can't because it's personal. Sorry. I won't, I won't tell you. But let me just tell you this. We had a situation and, and, and we spoke truth. We opened the book and spoke truth. Said, so this is what the Bible says for us. Now I understand how it feels to have such a thing in your life. And how your flesh would want to respond. But we don't have the option to respond that way. And this is what the Bible says. Now here's what will happen if you respond differently. The, the scripture is, and God will pour heaping coals or burning coals on their head. See, when we respond to evil with evil, the response is more evil. But when we overcome evil with good, then it empowers the spirit in our situation to pour hot coals. And what hot coals look like is someone starts to feel conviction for their evil versus anger because you responded back. And guess what happened? Somebody, I don't know, I haven't asked the questions yet, but somebody was obedient to the scriptures and the fruit was awesome. I saw it this morning in my own house. Don't be deceived. Being the devil's buddy will cause you to be the devil's buddy and not God's, and and death will come from it. And no matter how bad we're hurt, no matter how bad somebody has abused us, no matter whatever, at the end of the day, if we will be obedient to the truth. Remember, my sin problem, your sin problem, it may be huge and it might be rooted in some horrible, horrible stuff. The one who wants you to stay in it is immeasurable compared to the one who wants to help you out of it. 
Don't you think for one minute that God doesn't want to help us? What's the key to getting God to help us? It's humility. It's, 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 it's confession. Confessing is very humbling, right? I don't want you to think I'm a bad guy, but when I have the thing in the car, I want to confess it to you. Because why? I want to be a good example, but I want the grace of God to come and help me get over this darn thing so I don't have to deal with it anymore. I don't have to bring myself into darkness or allow darkness to suck me in anymore. God wants us to be holy. He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Guess what? We can be holy. Jesus is righteous. Our positional righteousness is as him. That's why that guy didn't have to stand on the scale. They weighed Jesus. They found him perfect. You're good because your righteousness is his righteousness. But there's a righteousness in our behavior that God's calling us to. That's why he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Desire righteousness. And guess what you'll find? Righteousness. I don't want you to go away discouraged. I, don't, I mean, honestly, I don't know of too much you know, bad sin stuff that's happening within you know, the people of our church. There might be some that I'm not aware of, but I, I don't know that, that, that I'm speaking to uh, you know, a, a terrible pot of people who are just you know, spitting all over God and his righteousness. But the righteousness of Christ is our goal. We don't compare with each other. It's like, oh, I'm okay because he's okay. Remember the guy said, hey, you know, my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff. And the guy said, you still sit over there. We don't measure ourselves against each other. We measure ourselves against the truth and against the perfection of our Lord. And we strive unto that perfection. And, and we, we rest in knowing that it's not our strength in striving. It's our, I don't know what, it's our passionate desire. It's our willingness to submit that we can be holy for he is holy. So don't be depressed if you've got a sin problem. But if you've got a sin problem, you need to deal with it. It needs dealt with. You can call me. You can call somebody else. You definitely need to call on the Lord because he will give you the grace of repentance if you will humble yourself and confess your sin. If it's a pattern of sin, be conscious that you might have a hard heart in a certain area. Ask the Lord to help you to get your heart tender in that place. Or get saved. No shame. I'm, I've told the story. I got saved 10 times. I don't know if I was still saved all the times or not saved all the times, but I come into greater awareness of, wow, this is what you're calling me to. Lord, I want you to know you are Lord over that part of my life. And if I'm not saved because I didn't know it, then I'm telling you now so I could be saved. Amen. I don't feel any shame for that. I feel gratitude towards the Lord. Okay. Well, Father... I thank you for these people. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the honor and the privilege to serve you and to serve them. I I thank you that your word is so awesome. I thank you that it's so powerful. I thank you that it can separate the bone from the joint and the marrow from the something else. and, 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 And it can show us our areas where we need to be cleansed and where we need to find holiness. I thank you that if we walk out your word, it's true and, and, it, and the truth happens. I thank you that in our family, Lord, that we are surrendering to you by discipling one another. Teresa to me, me to Teresa, us to the girls. The girls to me, Daddy, nobody made you angry. You chose. I'm getting discipled by my daughters. Thank you, Lord. I'm so grateful. And I pray, Lord, that we would desire, we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would desire to be a city on a hill, that we would desire to be so full of Holy Spirit that the rivers of living water that flow from our innermost places get this lost world wet, Lord, that there would be no judgment in our hearts, only a broken compassion for the lost and that they could know you, Lord. Thank you so much for salvation. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice. 
Help us, Lord, to repent from our sins. Convict us of our sins. If we won't see it, then send somebody else to convict us of our sins, Lord, so that we can be holy and we can be righteous and, and we can just walk in the way that you want us to walk. That you can, you can pour blessings out on us and you can pour your power through us and, and you will be glorified in our lives, Lord. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We praise you and we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.